Our speakers today are, first of all, Helen Petrie, who is Professor of Human-Computer Interaction at the University of York. Her main research interests are design and evaluation of technologies for disabled and older people, looking at methods and techniques of evaluation in human-computer interaction, and the design and evaluation of technologies for cultural heritage. She will then hand over to Sally Booth, who is a visual artist, and Sally will talk about her work as an artist and also her Jodie Award winning project for her website, which she won an award for in 2009, and also her practice and her work. Finally, we'll then speak, hand over to Tiki Lowe, who is also a visual artist and managed a project that won an award in 2011. And she's going to talk about that and also her wider practice as an artist and some of the projects that she's been working on to help engage disabled people with arts and heritage. So, without further ado, I'll hand over to Helen. Thank you. So, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm not from the uh, museum sector, but I'm passionately interested in the museum sector. And I've been working since about 2004 in making the museum sector, particularly digital aspects of the museum sector, more accessible. Whoops. Can I get the technology to work? Yes. So at the moment, I think we're at a quite a difficult point in the state of the world because we have a lot of cool digital stuff. I'm sorry, I've just been in the States for a week and everything is always cool and awesome when you're in the States. Um, we've had the web, obviously, for a while, but suddenly everything is apps rather than just websites and all kinds of interesting interactive technologies like surface computing are coming along. In 2005, I did a big evaluation for MLA, as it was then, looking at the state of accessibility of museum websites, which were kind of the height of... Um, digital technology at the time, and we seem to be doing quite well at that stage in that websites in the museum sector were more accessible than websites in general. I'd just done a big evaluation for the Disability Rights Commission, and the museum sector came out rather better, and people were obviously very committed in the museum sector, unlike some other sectors of society, in making digital aspects of their work accessible to everybody. So in a time when money is incredibly tight and yet technologies are moving on more rapidly than we can keep up with, how can we ensure that our digital artifacts, our digital interactives are usable by the broadest range of people? Particularly, I'm interested in people with disabilities and older people. So this is a really tough call at the moment. And I don't think the people working on the technical side are actually making our lives particularly easy. So you may well be aware that for web-based um, digital aspects, we have the web content accessibility guidelines that try and provide guidance on how to make websites and to some extent um, apps, but not 
terribly well with apps, but how to make things accessible for people with, with disabilities. The problem is that these guidelines are enormously complicated and are based in a jargon around a combination of web technologies and a bit around disability jargon, so that if you're new to this area, they, I suspect, appear quite incomprehensible and bury really important simple information deep down in web documents so that they're very hard to find. The other problem is that guidelines are all very well, but we've done evaluations of websites, including one or two famous museum websites, which I won't name and shame at the moment, and we've found that even if you do follow these guidelines, only about 50% of the problems that disabled people have with a website will be uncovered. So the guidelines are far from perfect at the moment. And uh, the guidelines people aren't very happy with my saying that, but I honestly believe that, and I have empirical data to show that. So I'm not saying the guidelines are wrong. I think it's important to try and follow the guidelines, but don't think that because you've followed the guidelines, you're going to have a perfectly accessible website. And then it's not clear what are you going to do with the surface computing interactive or with um, an app that you might be developing to replace your audio guide or to publicize your museum. So I was trying to think, well, what could I recommend that's practical for people to do um, to address this problem? And I think to, to use the guidelines as much as you can, but actually to me the gold standard, the real criteria of whether something is accessible is can it be used by people with disabilities and older people. So I really advocate testing with disabled people and with older people and getting them involved in the development process for new technologies. We have a panel of people at York that we work with who are enormously enthusiastic and positive about technical developments. Uh, we don't pay them any cash. We pay them um, with nice cups of tea and interesting mornings around technology. And I have to say, we do run a special line with our local Marks and Spencers of small value Marks and Spencers gift vouchers. In fact, the, the manager of Marks and Spencers did ask me recently, why did I buy so many gift vouchers for 10 pounds at Marks and Spencers? So this is a, a truly inexpensive way of ensuring that your developments are really usable by people, but also involving your local community in technological developments. And there are lots of local organizations around different disabilities, so there are lots of local organizations of visually impaired people, there are lots of organizations of older people that I think are very eager to be involved in these kinds of activities. 
I think the other recommendation I'd make is to try and do this really early in the development process because then things are not expensive to change. A number of times I've been asked to come in when something's already been developed and then when I've found problems with accessibility, they're quite difficult and expensive to change. But if you get your user group involved early on when you're shaping how things are going to be, then it doesn't add to the actual development cost. You're not having to retrofit accessible development. So that would be my one t key tip. If you're going to do this, do it early on because it will save you money in the long run. The other recommendation or uh, thing I want to promote, and this is a plug for work that I'm doing, but this is totally free, is I've been involved in a European network of experts on accessibility of digital information, and we're creating a website where we're putting all the information that we have about accessibility and how to make digital artifacts accessible to create a resource for people in different sectors. And one of those sectors is, I think on the website, it's actually called cultural heritage, which I'm not sure is a term everybody likes, but it's a European term that the commission likes. But that will be aimed very firmly at the museum sector. For example, other sectors are digital television, banking and finance and things like that. So we hope to create a kind of one-stop shop resource to provide people with the best information about how to make things accessible. Because I think as well as the guidelines being excessively complicated, I think another problem is that there are various sources of information out on the web, but they're quite difficult to find, and people are not really sure when they get to them, is this a really definitive resource, is this really going to help me? So the idea of this hub, as we're calling it, we called it the hub because it's meant to point out through spokes to lots of resources that are already available on the web, but to give you a very lightweight commentary and guide to, well, if you go to this standard, it will tell you this kinds of information and we think it will be useful um, for these circumstances, etc., etc. So it's not reinventing the wheel, to push that metaphor a little bit further, but pointing you to good resources and telling you how those resources might be useful. So it is not ready yet. There is a live website, but it's not great yet. It will be ready early in 2014, and I will publicize that to the Museum Association community in as many ways as I can when it's ready. And we're interested in having people from the museum sector contribute and also critique what we're doing. So even if you don't feel you have anything specific you want to, to add, but you would be interested in reading and commenting on stuff, please contact me. I'd be very interested in um, 
getting a little bit of help from you. And I can't remember, did I put a picture? Yes, I did put a picture of the hub. So this is the hub, the main page at the moment. On the left-hand side are the different uh, sectors, and one of those will say cultural heritage, and all, there are also general topics. So we're keeping it a very clean, plain web design uh, concentrating on the information. So we hope that very soon you will have a useful resource uh, to refer to and we hope that you'll help us build it a little bit. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Helen. Perfectly to time. Okay, and next we have Sally Booth. Hello, everyone. Um, as you'll be aware, I'm not a museum. I'm just a little artist and... I work as a, a visual artist, I do drawings and paintings and some photography. And I work quite a lot with galleries and museums in gallery education, running a hopefully accessible arts workshops and projects. Um, but to me, it's been a passion of mine to try and make my own work accessible, but also to be able to access the arts and for other people to access the arts, especially disabled people. Um, I um, became fr fully freelance about six years ago and as part of that process I obviously needed a website and my second confession today is that I'm a complete technophobe. So how was I going to do this? And the only way I could imagine um, actually putting together a website which seemed very daunting was to treat it as a creative collaborative arts project. Um, the websites I'd seen at the time, Helen was talking about how they've improved um, the museum's websites, at the time I was feeling actually quite frustrated looking at arts websites. I couldn't find my way around them. There was lots of fiddly-diddly text that I couldn't read with enlarged magnification, and I just got very cross. And I thought, well, if I make my own website, I just want to make sure at least I can see it. And that was my, that was my rule of thumb, really, uh, to treat the whole thing as a creative process and take it away from the idea of, of technology. So what I did was I got together with a designer who was very patient and talking, as Helen talked about, planning being really important. I had months and months of cappuccinos with this designer and a lot of my budget went on that. And it was really, really well spent because I really needed to understand how I could anticipate and embed access into a website that I might only be able to afford to build gradually as money comes in. As a freelancer, my, I have um, this, this title of this talk is Balancing Time, Money and Passion. So I have sometimes quite a lot of time, sometimes no time, a lot of passion, but that has to be self-motivated and keep it going long term, and rubbish money basically. So I had to do something really that was adaptable and that worked, worked for me and also was reflective of, of my own style. I wanted something that reflected me personally. I wanted something that was 
usable, not just the web guidelines, but actually usable and something that looked professional, that if people looked at it, they thought, oh, yes, she, she, she is quite serious about what she's doing. So that's at the beginning then, I spent months trying different dummy pages. I worked with, I, I got a grant from Action for Blind People for £1,500 to set me up and I worked with Disability Arts Online and a group of visually impaired and disabled people to try and um, try out some dummy pages and see what worked for people and to get, to get that feedback before I, before I did anything. And that was really time well spent. And I'm just going to, as I talk, just do a couple of, I've just done a couple of screen grabs from my website they're a bit rough and ready, but they just give an example about what I tried to do. And I think at the beginning I realised I couldn't make everything accessible for everybody at all times. Uh, and so what I thought I'd do is go down the route of experimenting with sample projects and adding layers of access to those particular projects. Um, and also concentrating on keeping my website really simple and everything any kind of gizmology has got the capacity to go wrong um, just as this might go wrong so I have my postcards um, that it just seems that you need belt and braces and I wanted to make sure that if something doesn't work at least that you do have something that's the bait the basics are right so I was careful to use the sans serif typeface really clear not too much text so it can be used on a mobile and seen quite easily, and nice spacing, and also a bit of me coming out as well. So a sample project that I did, I put this up because I actually did a, a residency in Liverpool, it's lovely to be back in Liverpool now, um, and I won the Adam Reynolds Memorial Bursary, so I was based at the Blue Coat Gallery uh, in the studios there for three months. And one of the things this resulted in was a commission um, to make a small show at the Blue Coat. And while I was at the Blue Coat, I don't know if any of you are native to Liverpool, but the Blue Coat is a Queen Anne building and has some, the most beautiful oval windows. And I photographed these during, during my stay there over the time. And as the, as the sun moved around in my studio, the, uh, the reflections of these windows made beautiful shapes. So I've just taken a screen from my page and I've got uh, a few images of the re reflections on the floor from the light from my studio windows. And these on my website, what I've done is um, done a description of each, of each image. And then I worked, I collaborated with uh, a professional describer and we worked together and she recorded them, my, my words, and so underneath these images you can see um, written description and also her telling you what each piece is. But I actually, from doing that, I realised there's something missing here in that I needed my voice somehow to come through on my site and um, I can't see to read out text. If I read out even what I've written, 
I'm like a five-year-old trying to read because I cannot see the, see the letters, even if they're really huge, and I can't speak in a fluid way, reading out loud. And I thought, well, what I am good at is I'm good at craning and I'm quite good at talking, so this has to come through on the site. So um, I've got up now um, just a still from a project that I did last year at the Liberty Festival on the South Bank, outside the National Theatre, and I made a 3D drawing installation about three metres by four metres, um, inspired by the architecture of the National and the South Bank. And I'm drawing this inside here. For, it was a live event and lasted a day. We got money for the Arts Council to do the project, but uh, there wasn't... And there was a bit of money to make a documentary film, but only without sound. So there's a time-lapse film I was able to put on. But when I got it back, I thought, this needs something that helps me more or helps other people more when they look at it out of context after this day has gone. So I got together with someone who does subtitles and knows about film. And so we filmed an interview of me. Uh, so it's got a commentary of me talking, in my own words, babbling along. Uh, and we put subtitles underneath to extend the access. And so for me, that's if somebody clicks on that film, which is in my gallery page under the film section, they'll be able to watch a five-minute film with me talking, and I wanted something a bit more personal. And that's just a grab of the context of the page with buttons for forward and backwards and to see other films. Okay. Um, well, what I wanted to also just quickly talk about is that uh, my experience um, very much reflects Helen's uh, the, the thought of things being usable rather than just following web guidelines is really feels very important to me and I've managed to really beg, borrow and barter <laughs> to, get, to get my site done and in this day and age I think this is the same for everybody um, I think that it's really important to be honest and true to the style of your own collection or your museum, whatever, whether it's big or small, something that reflects that collection's personality. When I did the, I did an assessment of Duxford recently and it had lovely wind-up wind up sound um, installation and it really went with the, with, it was really in the spirit of the collection. So I thought that was really, really excellent, true to, your, true to yourself. And um, the other thing that I think is just to keep things really simple um, and to make sure that the basics, the basics work. Um, my next challenge is mobiles and iPads and why films don't work <laughs> on those. So anyone who's got any help, that would be great. <laughs> so I want to just uh, thank everybody very much. Thank you. Hello, I'm Tiki Lowe and I'm an artist and also a project manager. Um, I work in a multi-sensory way. Um, this is the Access to Heritage Forum. I have run a project for MENCAP Liverpool and it's a forum of people with learning disabilities which was originally set up to find out why people with learning disabilities were not visiting or engaging with heritage venues. 
and we began by developing a way that made sure that forum members' opinions could be expressed, whether through speech or not. Um, in the initial stages of the project, we produced a report about our findings and a guide for museums and heritage venues, which is available on request. Um, we went on to run projects to create new interpretation, working in partnership with venues in Liverpool, such as St. George's Hall, Speak Hall, which is a National Trust property, and the National Wildflower Centre. We always in include a long period of creative consultation where professional artists work closely with the forum members before forming ideas about what they were going to design and make. We created a situation that doesn't usually happen when a museum commissions a new piece of interpretation, mainly due to cost and deadlines, but found that by listening to the forum before designing anything, and um, I mean through having lots of workshop sessions, which I'll explain later, um, that the artists came up with unexpected and innovative outcomes that showcased accessible design. Um, this is an image from Banquet, which we made for the opening of St. George's Hall in Liverpool um, when it became a visitor centre. And the banquet was based on a menu from a banquet that had been held, held there about 200 years ago. And we worked with four artists um, who worked with the senses and they worked with, did a lot of consultation. And I, by consultation, I mean workshop sessions Get, as the most important thing was getting to know the group of people we were working with, getting to know them individual, and for them to get to know the artists as well and feel comfortable with them. And in this image, um, there's a banqueting table, and you can see three ladies who are... Oh, no, sorry, there's two ladies and one gentleman. And they have wine glasses held up to their ears. They're listening to the sounds of a banquet in their ears. Um, Everything on the banqueting table is there to touch, and there are very sumptuous materials used to kind of describe the banquet. <clears throat> the menus on the table are smelly menus, if you lift them up, and most people scratch them because that's what we expect from the original scratch and sniff. But you can smell what the, the different courses were like. And you were allowed to sit down at the table to engage with it. So this was only on for a month, and we, we did um, use it a couple of times after that. But it was a temporary exhibition, but it worked really well. And it inspired us to carry on working in this way. This is an image from a project we did at Speak Hall, uh, which was a sensory trail, and this was a part of it. There's a gentleman who's bending down to, to smell the smell coming out of a kind of big trumpet thing. Um, it had to be made to be in keeping with the National Trust property. And there is a pair of bellows attached. So when you pump the bellows, you get a sound. In this case, it could be the billiard room. So you have a sound of people playing billiards, the clicking of the balls at the same time as a smell of cigar smoke, which went down really well. Um, the project that Access to Heritage won the Jody Award for was called Touch Pods. This is an image from one of our workshops um, of a, a young boy. He's looking at a screen with a, an 
enlarged image of a seed. Um, we worked with four artists and creative technologists. They work closely with the forum members and young people from the Royal School for the Blind and other local special needs schools to explore wildflower seeds as seen under the microscope. They worked together over a six-month period. We ran 30 workshop sessions and explored together. We looked at texture, contrast, using a USB microscope hooked up to a projector to see the tiny seeds as large as possible, um, playing with sound made by texture using a contact mic and a synthesizer. The outcome was a multi-sensory handling collection. There it is. Um, which was which was all about texture, sound, contrast, shape, and smell. Amongst the groups we worked with, there were young people with profound and multiple disabilities. So names of seeds and methods of seed dispersal were not important to them. They needed contrast, texture, and triggers for sound to help them to engage and enjoy the experience. The touch pods are still in use at the National Wildflower Centre, and they're available to be borrowed by groups and schools, but they also are used in educational sessions in conjunction with the USB microscope to look at wildflower seeds. Um, this session is um, meant to be about cheap and cheerful use of technology and so far I've been describing long and quite expensive consultation processes that lead to temporary interpretation and, and what are essentially prototypes, ideas for, um, for interpretation that's multisensory. But all of the projects I've mentioned have three things in common. Um, the use of consultation, which has been a theme for, for all of us. Uh, this is very much about non-screen-based, but digital interpretation. And the use of Arduinos. Do many of you know what an Arduino is? Okay. I'm not a technologist, and so to me, this had to be a really straightforward explanation. So they're like a little computer. Here you go. Um, that you can program to do things. It interacts with the world through electronic sensors, lights, and motors. In essence, it makes hardcore electronic projects accessible to anyone. So artists and creative people can concentrate on making their ideas reality. Okay. So here are a few projects where Arduinos, which are, in theory, they're... they're quite easy to use. You can go on um, a day course to learn how to use an Arduino, and they cost under £30. Um, so this is a project we've done recently. It's called Liverpool in a Suitcase. Um, basically, there are two suitcases, and this one you're looking at here has symbols for different parts of um, people's memories growing up in Liverpool. So we have football, um, we have holidays, we have the home, and we have music. And there's a little Arduino just behind that image and a dial which you can move, and it plays lots of music or sounds from, from those different themes. And it goes along with a, a handling collection with objects to feel and smell and basically to promote conversation. Um, this is an image from a project called Sensory Objects, um, which is an AHRC-funded research project. And the research question is, can digital technology help people with learning disabilities get more out of a heritage venue? For the last year, 
um, Access to Heritage has been working on this project again with Speak Hall. And this cushion has an Arduino inside it, along with a speaker. And when you stroke the cushion, it starts to tell a story from the perspective of somebody who lived in Speak Hall. So it's quite a lovely thing. This is a real loaf of bread, and it has an Arduino inside it. And it makes a sound when you lift it up. So you not only have the smell and feel of a real fresh, and it is fresh every time, crusty loaf of bread, but you have the sounds of the making process from one of our workshop sessions where we used the kitchens and recorded the sounds in a kitchen. Um, and these are from the workshop sessions where we, we used um, a box, the idea of a box, and these again had an Arduino in it. So, so the part workshop participants, our co-researchers, um, were able to use Arduino themselves and programmed them to make lights come on and sounds that they'd recorded in the house, and it all came together within their own box. And we, we used um, something called squishy circuits with Play-Doh and LEDs and batteries to explain to people and so that they could have a go themselves how electronics works in a very basic way, which really helped me. Um, I just wanted to end by saying that, that people with sensory impairments need hands-on experiences, sensory experiences, to help them to engage. And everyone benefits from experiencing through touch, although we are programmed not to as adults. Um, but can we facilitate touch and other senses in museums without losing the realness of the object? And can we think about replacing things? And, and do, you, do you already do that? So that, that was my question. And there's a few useful links in case you need them. Thank you. Okay. I'd like to open up the session now to questions. Thank you very much to all our panelists today. Does anybody have, we have some roving mics who are over to the left, my left hand side, I should say, of the room. Um, so if anybody has a question, just put up your hand and we'll start the ball rolling. Thank you. Uh, Christopher Dobbs, Mary Rose Trust. Um, we've also done some things with uh, people with profound and uh, very strong sensory disabilities. And I just wanted to check that you were saying that Arduino. Are you saying that uh, a complete idiot like me or my colleagues could sort of program that within half an hour and have it so you lifted up a, a loaf of bread and it, it, it could say something? I mean, is that, is that what you're saying? It sounds incredible. And I'm embarrassed I have not heard of it before. <laughs> and I thought that was a fantastic yeah. tip. Thank you. No, I know that, that is the theory. I, I can't do it yet, but I'm told that if I go on a, a course, and I, I think if you looked online, you might be able to find courses locally. Um, in Liverpool, there's a place called Does Liverpool. Uh, they run courses, which apparently, yes, it's aimed at complete idiots being able to use, <laughs> <laughs> being able to, to, to program things. And a lot of the programming already exists, so you might not even have to do that. You could just find out what it is you want something to do and then download the ready-made programming. But I can't go on and talk about it much because I, I don't know everything yet. Hello, Katie Duran, Freelance Project Manager. Um, another question for Tiki. I wanted to know what it meant to your organisation to win a Jodie Award. Um, 
to win a Jodie Award. Um, what does it mean to win? Um, yeah, it's, it's fantastic, and I think it, it meant that so many po more people knew about what we did and were interested in, in what we did, um, and, and that really helps to sort you know, more people knowing what we do is, is, is good. I think that was, that's really amazing. And Sally, did you have anything to add to that from your perspective? Um, yes. Um, I found that winning the Jodie Award was, well, first of all, it was a complete surprise, and I just felt... I felt quite astonished to win an award for technology. <laughs> um, uh, um, but it actually gave me quite a bit of confidence. And for a limited period, you know, I sort of, you, you are on a bit of a crest and people are, you know, interested for a bit. And it, it did give me the impetus to carry on with it and to keep to keep going because at, at, um, you do sort of feel that you're just doing this on your own and you're trying to make it a creative thing but it feels quite a lonely process at times so it was it was sort of a it was very encouraging actually and I got more interest work from galleries and museums as a result um, so yeah it's been it, it was very good Always good to get economic benefit, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> as well as prestige, absolutely. <laughs> and it, yes, one more, Ross. Yes. Ross Parry. Um, this, I guess, is a question more for, for Sally and for Helen. It's probably quite surprising for some people in the room to hear that there's a tension between usability and web accessibility guidelines you know that, that 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 seems a strange tension to hear could you give us a very specific or practical example where usability wins over those web accessibility guidelines because it's quite a, an abstract idea that and i wonder if you can just give us a concrete example it's interesting because i don't particularly think of it as a tension it's to me, that accessibility covers some things, but you, there is more to usability. So I'm trying to think of a good, clear example. Um, an example might be that if you provide alt text, the famous alt text, if people know about the web accessibility guidelines, the first thing they usually learn is that you should describe images. The trouble is the web accessibility guidelines tell you nothing about what to put in those image descriptions, which for museum people I think is rather disappointing. So we had a famous example. Now you may not believe this, but this is a real example because it happened to me. I was evaluating a website and there was a picture of a cat on this website and I was told that the cat belonged to a particular person so that the description ought to have been something like this is Carlos's cat curled up in front of the fire. The description actually said elephant and I had a very long argument with the web developer saying, but your alt text is wrong and he kept on saying, no it isn't, I have put alt text 
he was German. So he said, I have put out text. And I kept on saying, yes, you've put out text, but it's no bloody good, is it? Eventually, <laughs> it emerged that he didn't know why it said elephant. He was as surprised as I was. So the fact that, to, to put it more generally, the fact that there was some alt text doesn't mean it's good alt text or usable alt text or helpful to people. And it was particularly distressing to Carlos, who'd given us the picture of his cat. <laughs> we never told him it was described as an elephant. So, so it's, it's, the guidelines tell you a bit, but not enough. Yes, uh, um, leading, oh, you've yes, got your own um, mic. <laughs> this is what, yeah. Leading on from that, um, I worked for quite a famous disability arts organisation for a while, and um, they had alt texts on some of their images, and it said, picture of a disabled person. So every picture that had a person in it just said, picture of a disabled person. Uh, and it didn't say, this person is important because they were a leading entrepreneur or this person is a musician or it didn't give you any clue as to what the reason that picture of that person was there for so again it's a contact so they they had done the right thing but I actually in the end found it quite offensive <laughs> but I just thought I'm working for this organization and um and it, it's it's quite tricky I think to get people to to get that and and I think what I've been doing is sort of also just saying underneath the picture why I've put the picture in in some very very brief brief way um so and I found the guidelines just totally unfathomable and they didn't have any pictures to explain to me <laughs> why <laughs> why you know how what it means um uh, so, so that, those are a couple of examples. Um, and I think that things like font sizes and stuff, there's all this thing about clear print and large print and people mistaking 0.14 for being large print where actually it's clear print and seeing websites that have got tiny, tiny, tiny fonts or print out in tiny, tiny fonts. And there's not really anything in the guidelines that addresses that. Um, and those are the things that drive me bananas when I'm looking at websites. So that's, that's what I think about usability, really, being different <laughs> to web guidelines. Thank you. Any further questions? Well, I've got one for um, Tiki. Just finishing up on the, the last bit of your presentation, and you were talking about using, um, I think as the first question said, the loaf of bread and a real loaf of bread and, and real objects that are perishable. How do you find that when working with organisations that you know, they might need to keep replacing those objects to make sure that the ex exhibit still looks good and, and works? Well, with the loaf of bread example, um, we, when, when that was being made, the idea, we were working alongside volunteers and staff at Speak Hall, the National Trust property. Um, and so we had that discussion with them while we were developing it, and we decided that we'd give it a try. They, they spoke to the volunteers, the staff spoke to the volunteers, and they thought, well, well, okay, every three days we're going to have to replace the loaf of bread, and we, all we need to do is cut open the bottom, take a chunk of bread out, and put the same gubbins back in, and also making sure it's charged um, so that it always works. And 
they decided that they could do it. It could be just a volunteer responsibility and someone would pick up a loaf of bread on the way and it had to be the right kind. Um, and I haven't checked to see if it, they're still doing that, but at that stage they decided that they'd give it a go. Um, at that property in the kitchen they were also having things like um, freshly mixed cake mixture. And so they'd already made a decision that they were going to keep on you know, replenishing things and it, that it was possible to do that. And, and so it wasn't such a massive step for them to, to take on that one more thing. And I think, you know, it's something that makes that it's really engaging for more people that then it's worth doing. It gives it that extra, that extra level, really, that, that makes the place much more exciting. And with sensory memories, you, you're going to remember it for much longer. So mm -hmm. I think it works. We have time for about one more question, if anybody's got anything else that they would like to ask. Yes, thank you. Hi, uh, my name is Sue James. I'm from Museum Wales. I'm also um, one of the judges that sit on the Jodie Matters Trust. Um, just, um, I wanted to ask a question, which is it's kind of reworded, really. I think it's been asked earlier. Um, has receiving the award um, opened up avenues for um, you to kind of work with and engage with museums, archives, and libraries, have they started, because you've won the award, coming to you to kind of build on your expertise and work with you? Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> that hasn't, um, I've, our award was won in, um, in 2011, and um, as yet, that, that hasn't happened, really. It hasn't started to happen, but, but it would be, it'd be great if, um, if more people wanted to, to work with us. Um, yeah. <laughs> Um, I was lucky enough to be um, invited by Marcus Vison to work with him and Chris from the University of York, and we did actually come to Wales <laughs> um, to work with the uh, museums and like Risen Archives, as was then, um, and also to do some talks um, at the National Archives in Kew. Um, so for me, um, that has resulted in that, but also it's resulted in being able to meet people who know a lot more than I do, um, like Chris from, from York, who was a techie wizard. <laughs> so um, that has been you know, quite a symbiotic, um, helpful sort of outcome, really. And I suppose putting my um, award winner's hat back on, um, many hats I seem to wear, um, certainly working within the, the National Trust, it made my organisation take the whole topic of accessible um, digital culture a lot more seriously and start to examine things outside of the project that we won for, which was a virtual tour project, um, and sort of thinking, well, actually, there are benefits in doing this. We do get some kudos out of this work, and actually, it's just the right thing to be doing and enabling more people to take part in what we do. So we have started to see some broader thinking resulting in being able to say that we'd won one of the Jody Awards from uh, 2008. So I think these things take time, but so hopefully, Tiki, you'll see the benefits soon, but it's certainly something that has made a difference to us. Okay, I will, um, I'll just wrap up the session and say thank you very much all of you for attending. Thank you very much to our three panel members for some really interesting talks and topics and some great questions from the floor as well. And I hope that all of you can come to our evening networking session at quarter to six at the Museum of... Quarter to seven, sorry, hour early, at the Museum of Liverpool, where as part of that session we'll be presenting the Jodie Awards for Accessible Digital Culture for 2013. So I hope to see you there. Thank you very much.